there had been abuse in my family, uh, but it was mostly musical in nature. Are you ready to get your world rocked? Ready! Are you ready to get your mind blown? Do it! One, two, three, four! Alice Cooper's been shocking audiences since the early 70s, but behind the makeup and the props is a true rock and roll soul. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Cott. We'll have an in-depth conversation with Alice Cooper, plus Jim's going to put a quarter into the Desert Island jukebox. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. This is Sound Opinions, and in this show, Jim, we are going to be talking to Alice Cooper. And, you know, he got sort of written off by some people because, oh, he was shock rock and he belongs to the 70s. But i got to say, you know, for your typical shock rocker, this guy's not typical at all. I think those songs that he wrote and sang in the 70s really hold up today. Absolutely, Greg. There are some very famous fans of his songwriting. We'll be talking about that later. But more than that, Alice is a gentleman and a scholar, even. That's later in the show, but first we have some music news. Greg, probably the only reason we would ever play We're Not Gonna Take It by Twisted Sister is to mark the 30th anniversary of the Parents Music Resource Center Inspired Hearings on Capitol Hill in 1985. Seems like only yesterday to me. This was public enemy number one, a huge assault on the music we love for being harmful to children, okay? You had a group called the Washington Wives. It was intentionally a nod to the Stepford Wives. Some very big names on the Hill. Tipper Gore co-founded it. She was the wife of Al Gore, the wife of the Treasury Secretary at the time. Susan Baker was the other key force. They were pushing Congress to clamp down on questionable lyrics because they claimed that these songs were prompting violence, destructive behavior, all sorts of horrible things among the youth of America. You know, this had happened in the 50s about comic books and about rock and roll in its earliest days. It seemed ridiculous to be happening again in 1985. And the most amazing thing about those hearings, I'll never forget watching part of it on TV, Frank Zappa, John Denver, Rocky Mountain High, right? Mm -hmm. And Dee Snyder of Twisted Sister being the most eloquent defenders of rock and roll lyrics that the Washington wives did not understand. Talking about free speech and this was art and get your business out of my lyrics, basically. All three of those artists, you couldn't imagine three more diverse artists. Right. Dee Snyder was actually incredibly eloquent, and he came across as a very serious and sober, well-intentioned father and explain the difference between the role he played on stage and the role that they were casting upon him as this horrible enemy of the culture. We cannot allow this to continue. There is no authority who has the right or the necessary insight to make these judgments. Not myself, not the federal government, not some recording industry committee, not the PTA, not the RIAA, and certainly not the PMRC. 
it seems quaint today, right? You have explicit warnings when you are about to download a song, but none of the labels that the Parents Music Resource Center imposed upon the record industry. Why did that matter? Because if you were selling an album like In Utero in Utah or Wyoming or North Dakota, there were many chain stores, the only places to buy records, that would not stock any album with a parental advisory sticker, right? Now, you can be anywhere in the world, even, you know, in communist countries, and download music, and the free speech is unfettered. The PMRC even went so far as to issue a filthy 15, the 15 most notorious rock songs that they could think of. They recommended that these songs be banned because of the subject matter. It seemed like Tipper Gore and her minions had sex on on their minds because that was the reason cited, the sole reason cited for banning nine of these 15 songs, including uh, tracks by Prince, Sheena Easton, and even Cyndi Lauper, of all people, for the song Shebop. A couple of songs about drugs, a couple of songs about rock and roll, which I equate to violence. You know, this is... uh, Motley Crue and uh, Twisted Sister in the in the violent camp. And then finally, one song about the occult, thanks to Venom and the song Possessed. This 15 is actually a pretty good set for a garage band <laughs> that wants to do good covers of this. You know, and I don't think it hurt many of these artists. Certainly didn't hurt Madonna or Def Leppard. But good riddance to the PMRC. What a time in rock history. That's Arcade Fire with the song Reflector, and the lead singer of that band, Wynn Butler, who doesn't give too many interviews, Jim. No, he's Uh, a tough one. We've had him on the show. Yes, but he's been put on the record about the title streaming service in which he is an investor. If you remember when they had that big rollout ceremony and, and Wynn Butler was on stage along with all these other musical luminaries like Jay-Z and Nicki Minaj, you know, presenting the rollout of uh, Jay-Z's title service. He now says that uh, there was a lot wrong with the way that was handled. He's basically criticizing the company that he's in bed with. He said it was a poorly managed launch, but he still defends it as conceptually the thing that we liked about title was that it had HD streaming quality. But he used that as an opportunity to go after the major label system. He says the real reason that title is struggling is because the major labels imposed a $20 cost on the streaming service for a monthly subscription rate, double what the competition is offering. And he said the major label music industry has completely ruined every aspect of their business, which is an interesting thing for Wynn Butler to say, Mm. considering that uh, Reflector, even though the band is signed to merge Records, a great indie label. The Reflector album was distributed by a major label, Universal, and then was promoted to radio by another major label company, Capitol Records. (laughs) So there you go. Wynn Butler wants to have it both ways, apparently. Listening to Sound Opinions, and that's the title track from the 1973 album Billion Dollar Babies by our guest this week, Alice Cooper. Greg, Alice was born 
Vincent Fernier in Detroit, but he moved to Arizona when he was a teen. In high school, in 1964, he was the lead singer in a garage band, The Spiders. Kicking around Phoenix for a couple of years, eventually moved to L.A. The band changed its name to Alice Cooper, and Vince adopted that moniker himself. A couple of albums followed under that name. Pretties for You, 1969. Easy Action, 1970. Not making much of an impact. But in 71, everything clicked when the group started working with producer Bob Ezrin, who's been a guest on this show. Love It to Death spawned the mega hit I'm 18, and a string of super successful albums followed. School's Out, Billion Dollar Babies, and of course, Welcome to My Nightmare. Pretty soon, Alice Cooper was becoming infamous for the theatricality of his stage show. You know, he was inventing a style that would become shock rock. And what he was doing is he was bringing on stage straight jackets, snakes, guillotines. I mean, this guy was doing it up big. Lots of blood, lots of fake violence. It was the most outrageous show in rock for quite a number of years in the early 70s. Now, Alice Cooper is putting out a 15-CD box set, the studio albums 1969 through 83, and is touring with a new supergroup he calls the Hollywood Vampires, which he formed alongside Johnny Depp and Aerosmith guitarist Joe Perry. They have a record which features a lot of guests, Paul McCartney, Dave Grohl. They're all fans of Alice, and we're very excited to talk to Alice Cooper. Alice, it's a pleasure to have you on Sound Opinions. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, it's interesting that you are not only continuing the Alice Cooper thing, but got this other band. Is it proper to call the Hollywood Vampires, this project, a band? I mean, was it originally conceived that way? It was, it was originally a drinking club. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, we, we'd meet every night at the, uh, at the Rainbow Club in Los Angeles, and it was always the same guys. It was Harry Nielsen and Keith Moon and myself and Bernie Toppin. Mickey Dolan's. <laughs> Basically, we would sit there, and it was last man standing sort of drinking thing. Wow. And we would wait to see what Keith Moon was going to wear. <laughs> it was basically, yeah, so one night he would be the Queen of England, and then he'd come in the next night as Hitler, and one night he was a French maid. <laughs> so we had to keep telling ourselves, yeah, but he is the best drummer in the world. Right, yeah. right. <laughs> All in the early 70s. Yeah, this was, I mean, this was sort of like when everybody was at their peak. We were all in L.A. at that time. So the Hollywood Vampires, there's only three of us left now, Mickey and Bernie Toppin and I. So we decided, why not do an album honoring our dead drunk friends? Wow. So it was never musical back in the day. It was strictly about hanging out and, and having a great time. And That might have been the, the clubhouse where everybody would go, and that would be the only place where we didn't have to talk about music. Wow. And it was a very silly place. I mean, you get that many drunk rock stars in one place, it's... It really, it wasn't really like falling down drunk. We had one waitress named Shotzi, great name, huh? <laughs> Shotzi, and she knew exactly what we drank and how much and when to cut us off and everything like that. There, wow. there was really no cutoff. Was John Lennon uh, was his Lost Weekend a part of these escapades? He factored into this a little bit as well. Oh right? yeah, yeah, yeah. John was always with Harry. Harry Nielsen was his buddy, and that was a real click right there. You know, Ringo and Harry and and John and those guys, and. What would happen would would be like if John was in town, he would come over and Harry would bring him over and we'd sit there. And I would sit in the middle between the two <laughs> because one's Irish, one's English. They'd start drinking and then one guy would say black, one guy would say white, one guy would say – and then I was the referee. <laughs> yeah. And John always wanted to get political and I told him, I said, 
I said, John, I'm not politically incorrect. I'm politically incoherent, okay? <laughs> I said, I could care less about politics. Well, Alice, not to slight your status as a huge rock star yourself, but there's always been this element. You're the regular guy from Detroit, grew up in Arizona. Right? Were you pinching yourself at that moment to be surrounded by these titans of British rock? Yeah, when you're in the presence of any beetle, that's a different thing. <laughs> Rarified you know? air, yeah. Yeah, once you get to know those guys, they're just regular guys. Like McCartney is, I've known him for 35 years. Now, being in a studio with McCartney is a different thing because then all of a sudden you're sitting there and he's going, you take the high part, okay, you take this, you take that. We're all looking at each other going, that's Paul McCartney. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, well, you know, you're stunned, but at the same time, he's just a guy in the band and he really likes just being in the band. I'm the bass player. Yeah. But it's hard to get past that. They are the Beatles, you know. Right, right. Well, so how does the 2015 Hollywood vampires, you, Johnny Depp, Joe Perry, some very impressive guest stars, how does this legendary 70s drinking club become a band in the here and now? I was doing Dark Shadows with Johnny Depp in London, and the band that night decided we had just played a big show in London, Wembley or something, and we decided to go to this club called The 100 Club, which is about the size of the studio I'm in right now. But everybody played there. And we knew Johnny was a guitar player. And I said, why don't you come down and play with us? And he says, sure. Comes down. You might do No More Mr. Nice Guy and Under My Wheels, and then somebody would yell out Brown Sugar. Mm. And you play Brown Sugar. So we got to be a covers band. And to us, that was a very comfortable kind of place to be. But then I said, if I've, I've never done a covers album. If I'm going to do one, it would be fun to do one honoring our dead drunk friends. Mm. And when we started adding up who the people were, and all the songs we could do. Then Johnny says, well, I got a studio in my house, and we started working from there. Joe Perry walks in. So if people just walked in and just said, I'm in. I'm raising my glass and tossing it back, but I can't remember why. So let's have another for all of my brothers who drank until they died. Yeah, and, and this playlist on the album, Hollywood Vampires, a pretty impressive list of, I would assume, very formative type of influences in some cases. I know that my generation, the Who song, was was a huge influence on you, Alice. I mean, I've, I've read oh, that absolutely. in a few places. When did you first hear that song, and why did it have such an impact on you? Well, you know, we're in high school. All of a sudden, the song comes on the radio, and it was probably the first anthem I'd ever heard. The, the first real anthem. Later on, it sparked 18 and schools out and I want to be elected, the, the anthems that Alice had, because I loved the idea of speaking to a generation, and the song can go five, six generations apart, and it still works. Every time we do 18 on stage now, everybody in that room yeah. totally gets it. If you do Schools Out, everybody goes back to their last day of school. Those were real anthem anthems that every kid could get.
speaking to the generation, it, it was that it was sort of was a conscious thing going into writing a song like 18, which was really the song that put you guys on the map. It was a conscious thing. I'm going to write this anthem. I'm going to have lyrics that are speaking to my generation. Yeah, it really was. Uh, uh, to be honest with you, it started out, that song was basically a jam, that, you know, three, four chord jam. And Bob Ezrin heard it, and he said, what is that thing you're singing? I'm edgy? And I go, no, no, it's, I'm 18. I like the idea of the hook being, I'm a boy, I'm a man, I'm in the middle, I don't know what to do. And it was during the Vietnam War, of course. In other words, I, can, I can't vote, but I can be in the Army. And, mm-hmm. and it sounds really kind of complaining and whiny. And then at the end, he said, I'm 18, and I like it. Mm-hmm. The, the idea of I like being 18. I love the idea that I'm confused and I'm sexually insane. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I mean, th- there was a, then it was a celebration of being 18 years old and irresponsible. So the story of your band goes back to when you were a teenager. Before Alice Cooper was Alice Cooper, you had formed in Arizona the Spiders in 1964. Tell us about that original incarnation of the band. The weirdest thing about the Alice Cooper band, there were so many ironies about it and so many strange left turns. We were a high school rock band, and it just so happened that three of the guys in the band were art majors. Okay, Mm -hmm. It just so happened that three guys in the band we're also four-year lettermen in cross-country and track. <laughs> wow. So we were jocks on top of <laughs> yeah. it. Basically, we ran our school because we were all Ferris Bueller. Yeah. It was, yeah. Mm-hmm. We not only had the jocks wired, we had the rockers wired because we were the number one sort of local band in town. Everything was in place. Yeah, no mm-hmm. wonder you're 18 and you like it because mm-hmm. you're the coolest guy in the world. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we had, I had girls doing homework for me. <laughs> I had band rehearsal. And if I wasn't band rehearsal, I was running 10 miles that night because of the track meet next week. But anyways, there was nobody really wanted to beat us up because we had everybody covered. After a quick break, we'll continue our conversation with Alice Cooper. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. I'm here with Greg Cott. And that's a bit of the song Reflected from the debut album Pretties for You by our guest, Alice Cooper. That's 1969. Alice, by the late 60s, your band The Spiders had gone through a couple of name changes. First to the Naz, not to be confused with the Todd Rundgren band. And finally, to Alice Cooper. What was it like playing in and around Los Angeles in those early years as Alice Cooper? The strange thing was we came to L.A. like every other band out of high school and trying to get into the whiskey, trying to get into Beto Lido's or any of the clubs. And who are you up against? You're up against the Doors. You're up against Buffalo Springfield. They're already established. Mm -hmm. So all the bands we're up against now are Spirit, who were the best band I think I'd ever heard live next to Paul Butterfield. Mm. And all the other bands that were just trying to make it, we finally got a, a gig at the whiskey where I looked up at the whiskey and it said, Alice Cooper, and I said, and who's Led Zeppelin? <laughs> <laughs> and they, they walked in, and I looked at Jimmy Page, and I went, hey, he was with the Yardbirds. Yeah. And so I said, we open for you. And he says, okay, well, we'll open for you tomorrow. The next night, the night after that, we played the Cheetah Club, and I went, Alice Cooper, and who's Pink Floyd? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sid Barrett, Pink Floyd. Right, wow. Now, we fit in with Pink Floyd more than anybody else because... We were writing these songs that were like, we had like six two-minute songs with 35 changes in them. Yeah, well, I've always read that your guitarist, Glenn Buxton, was usually influenced by Barrett's guitar playing. Glenn could not jam with a blues player, but you give him an echoplex and mm. Sid Barrett, and they would sit there for hours mm. <laughs> playing back and forth echoplex wow. stuff. Mm -hmm. yeah. Now, it, the strange thing was... was we were very influenced by mostly the Yardbirds. That was like our influence. But then when we started writing our own songs, we took them in so many different directions. You'd hear a little bit of I Spy. You'd hear a little bit of Man From Uncle theme. You'd hear a little bit of this going on because we grew up with that stuff. Mm. We used to do the Patty Duke theme, you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Frank listened to like seven of the songs and he looked at me and he goes, I don't get it. <laughs> and I went, well, is that good? And he goes, oh, yeah, it's great. <laughs> so, so this he is says, the fact that I don't get it is really important. Yeah. So, so you're yeah. talking about Zappa. You were blowing Zappa's mind. Yeah. Well, yeah, because he said, first of all, he says, your songs don't go anywhere. He says they don't <laughs> go back to the verse. They don't go back to the chorus. They go to someplace else and then just stop. And I said, yeah. <laughs> and he says, well, okay. He says, now, where are you guys from? He said, are you from, like, New York or, you know, where the I said, we're from Phoenix. He goes, now I really don't get it. <laughs> he said, why would a cowboy town come up with guys that are playing stuff that, that's even making me go, what? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, Zappa, the great musical scholar, is studying Edgar Varese to get to the same place you're getting to just out of sheer dumb, like, we don't know better. You know, that was the funny thing. We could write stuff that was like everybody else. But I said, well, why would we go there? Yeah. Dennis Dunaway and I were the two real art majors. 
And Dennis was the one that would take it off into another realm. And I'd kind of look at him and go, okay, yeah, let's go there. Yeah. Because Why? Because nobody's ever gone there. <laughs> so let's go there. I know a shoe salesman. He's an acquaintance of I think Alice, when uh, you know people discovered you, they would go back to those first two albums, and their minds would be blown, much like Frank Zappa's. Like, what is this? This relates not at all to the band I'm hearing in the midst of your multi-million-selling heyday in the early '70s. Well, to be to be honest with you, that's all Bob Ezrin. What happened was the first two albums, Pretties for You, and Easy Action. Those albums were written when we were the Spiders and the Naz. And so I kind of look at those albums as being Spiders and Naz albums. Mm-hmm. When Bob Ezrin came in, and suddenly he took all of those little ditty parts that were really clever little parts and said, okay, we're going to get rid of 85% of this, but <laughs> these, this 15% is really good. He spent most of his time in the studio going, dumb it down. Yeah. And then when we heard it on the radio, we went, oh, yeah. Yeah, you couldn't get away from it. It was so simple. Well, we had Ezrin on the show, and he's he's a, a great talker and a great storyteller. Oh, he's but, got so many stories. Yeah, but you're self-effacing almost to a flaw. You know, simultaneous to the sound being crafted in the studio, really coming together on "Love It to Death" '71. Right, you're also inventing this character and this larger-than-life stage persona. Already in this chat, you've referred several times in the third person to Alice. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And so, I do always. I yeah, always refer yeah. to him. I can step outside of Alice and go, Alice wouldn't wear that, yeah. you know? Yeah. Or, or or even my kids would watch a video, and they'd say, hey, Dad, Alice is on. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, not you're on. Yeah. yeah. Thinking as the art student, right, what's the genesis of that really coming together? What were the different strands? I mean, because people have said everything from Salvador Dali to other crazy rockers, you know. Uh, we never really followed the rockers. Mm. It was always something outside of rock. So nothing like Screaming Jay Alice. Hawkins, you know, with the— Yeah, the, and we didn't even know who that was. Oh, I mean, wow. that was out of our radar. Mm-hmm. The, the world was full of Peter Pans, and there was no Captain Hook. <laughs> and to me, I went, I will gladly be Captain Hook. It's needed. There's no, there's no villain in rock. There's no Moriarty. And then when you start creating this character, I think the two things that influenced it most, the look of it, we saw Barbarella, the movie. Right. The Black Queen. Uh-huh. I went, ah. Oh, so you're whole, not you know, siding that... with Jane Fonda. You're going with the Black oh, Queen. Oh, no, I'm going with the Black Queen, yeah. And she had switchblades coming out of her wrists, and I went, okay, that's, <laughs> that's Alice. And then the other one, the odd one was Baby Jane. Whatever happened to Baby Jane? Mm -hmm. Now, when I'm very good and do as I am told, I'm Mama's little angel and Papa says I'm good as gold. But when I'm very bad and answer back and sass, then I'm Mama's little devil and Papa says I've got the brass. Betty Davis is 70 or 80 years old trying to look like a 12-year-old, and she's got this makeup that's caked on, and it's all cracking, mm-hmm. and the lipstick is all crooked, and the eyes are all crooked because it's not on very well, and I went, okay, take the Black Queen and put that makeup on her, and you've got Alice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. I finally created my favorite rock star, 
he's pretty entertaining. There's no doubt about that. I think Ezrin really appreciated that. And you again, you're kind of self-deprecating about this whole dumb it down thing because at the same time on Love It to Death, you've got a thing like The Ballad of Dwight Fry, which is this really ambitious piece. It's like a mini drama or a play. Everybody talked about Bella Lugosi and Boris Karloff and Lon Chaney, and yeah, well-deserved. The creepiest thing about those movies was Dwight Fry. Mm-hmm. He was Fritz in, in Frankenstein, the little guy with the hunch on his back, yeah. and he was Renfield. Yeah. Well, yeah. nobody was creepier than Renfield. Flies? Poor, puny things. Who wants to eat flies? You do, you loony. When I can get nice fat spiders. And I said, what is that guy's name? That guy that plays both those characters. We found out it was Dwight Fry, and I said, well, he deserves to be immortalized. (laughs) (laughs) To this day, that is still the most theatrical thing we do on stage, and the audience craves it. They love Alice in a straitjacket. Yeah. 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 And an insane nurse behind him, you know. It's an amazing moment in the show. And the other thing I want to point out about Love It to Death, which has so many elements that are way ahead of what was going on in mainstream rock at the time, the attitude, that's the thing I think I remember relating to first. Like, you were punk rock before punk rock. Caught in a dream. I'm, I'm caught in a dream, so what? I mean, that's like, yeah. that, that, that's, like the, that, that's like the whole punk attitude right there. And nobody was seeing those kind of words. Back and, then. You know, it was. I was born in Detroit, so there's a certain amount of. I cannot ever imagine going on stage without at least two guitars at full blast. Mm-hmm. I'm a guitar rock guy, it, because I mean, Detroit rock is real industrial, real Chuck Berry type of rock and roll. And then you put your twist on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You put the Alice twist on it. Being a lyricist, that was really where all the twists came from. If you say "Welcome to my nightmare." Well, give them the nightmare. Don't just say it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, if you've got something that rich in theatricality, you can't just say, welcome to my nightmare. You've got to give it to them. Welcome to my nightmare. I think you're going to like it. I think you're going to feel you belong. As a result, you guys didn't get a lot of respect, even as you're having these million-seller albums, uh, School's Out, 72, Billion Dollar Babies, 73, all of them on this box set. You're not getting yeah, a lot of... Yeah, they were two number ones in a row. Yeah. Mm-hmm. School's Out and Billion Dollar Babies, yeah. But, but no respect, Alice, from rock critics. Did that hurt at the time when people weren't understanding what you were doing or just saying, well, this is bubblegum, this is kid stuff? To us, it just made us matter and made us more irritable and made us work harder. I think other bands would rehearse two hours a day. We rehearsed nine hours a day. Mm. And eight hours was on the music and one was on the theatrics. So I think it made us work harder to get people to respect our playing ability. We had to overcome the visual thing. They all loved the show. But, you know, a lot of the critics said, well, take the show away, and what are they? There's that famous quote from Dylan in the mid-'70s, Alice Cooper is underrated as a songwriter. Mm -hmm. And that was one thing that just absolutely, then we started getting respect. (laughs) Because when Dylan spoke and said Alice is a great lyric writer, all of a sudden 
we got respect. What did you threaten and, him with, and or then, how much did you pay him? Yeah, I didn't even, I've never met Dylan. Wow. And it was one of those things where, like, I didn't even know he knew we existed. All of a sudden, these guys are listening to your albums, and McCartney heard our albums. He says, I s- snuck into the Nightmare Show in 1975. He says, and it was great. I never saw anything like that. When you get those people talking about you, then suddenly everybody has to listen to you. Yeah, I think Dylan, especially talking about you as a great songwriter, because you were saying things that no one else was saying or was allowed to say or felt cowed to say. I mean, we just didn't care. We just said what we were going to say. And if it was clever, that was the important thing, to be clever. Mm -hmm. I, I really did not want to be a blunt instrument. I wanted it to be in your face, but... When when you thought about it the second time, you went, oh, that's clever. I love the dead before they're cool. The bluing flesh for me to hold. Cadaver eyes upon me see nothing. But, you know, you think about a song like I Love the Dead, you know, I mean, necrophilia, Alice. I mean, my God. Is there anything funnier than necrophilia? <laughs> Come on. And even Ann Landers, she went off on this necrophilia, how dare you, and this and this. And I wrote her a letter back saying, if necrophilia takes off as some sort of fad, I said, I will take responsibility. Other than that, get a sense of humor. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right, right. I said, nobody's serious about necrophilia, okay? It, it really is extraordinary how, how dense the press was when dealing with you. I, I have always wanted to ask you about Bob Green. Starts out at the Chicago Sometimes, moves to the Chicago Tribune. Greg and I, as Chicago journalists, of course, you deal with Bob Green, right? So he yeah. goes on tour with you in 1973 and writes a book, Billion Dollar Baby. And I had sort of respected some of Green's I mean, when he would go meet a beach boy or something, it was kind of okay, right? But he did not understand Alice Cooper at no. all, did he, in that when book? We, when we realized he was gullible, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's when we went off. You know, we, when <laughs> I, we would walk into the room and say, okay, Neil, this time you're going to be angry, and you're going to throw the ashtray against the wall. Yeah. And, he's gonna, and as soon as he would leave, we'd just laugh because we never fought. But he's writing a book on us. we got to make this really look like it's very intense and dramatic and everything. I I think we made him dress up like Santa Claus at Madison Square Garden, and we beat him up at the end of the show. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Santa Claus got mugged. I remember that. Yeah, my Santa Claus gets mugged. I said, well, of course Santa Claus should get mugged. Do you want to be Santa Claus? Sure. (laughs) Yeah, but but the show that he was kind of ensconced in, to me it was like a play in itself. I mean, you put so much effort into... The, the, the songs were amazing, but I think at the same time, there was more going on than just a bunch of songs being played. You were, you were creating a, a play with a beginning, middle, and end, and I always saw it like as a cautionary tale. Like you were saying, like nobody really thinks necrophilia is a good idea, and if they did, this, would, this is what would happen to them, and the guy gets killed at the end, right? I mean, isn't that the whole oh, yeah. idea? Yeah, mm-hmm. the, the fact that it, 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 I can't think of any play, movie, or anything where if the villain doesn't get it in the end, it's not satisfying. You have the mm-hmm. villain yeah. has to get it in the end, and so Alice, of course, is going to get electrocuted, <laughs> or he's going to get he's going to get uh, the gallows, or he's going <laughs> to get his head cut off, and it's a satisfying moment at the end of the show because 
what happens next? He comes back out with a white top hat and tails, and there's bubbles, and there's confetti, and he's born again. There he comes. Uh, Alice is not dead. Way before Jason Voorhees. <laughs> when the guillotine yeah. falls, right, you know, at the end of the show, then you're able then to, to put it all in the road case and go play some golf or go have a nice dinner, and uh, you don't have to be Alice 24-7. Not always. When I was drinking... I and, and when I first started out, you have to remember, I went through this. Who were my big brothers? Jim Morrison, Jimi Hendrix. These were my the guys I hang hanging out. I was the little brother. Yeah. And I'm watching these guys, and going, twenty seven years old, they're dead. You yeah. know, and they had a pre, they lived their image. They tried to live their image. You know, and I, and I thought, well, my image is even more pronounced than theirs. How am I going to survive this? Yeah. And when I got sober, I finally realized there needs to be two Alice's. There needs to be me who can go to a baseball game or go shopping or go to a movie. And then there's him who I get to play at night. Right, right. And when I got sober, I I understood I don't have to carry the snake around. I don't (laughs) have to wear the makeup every place I go. If you want to see Alice, I'll give you 100% Alice. When you come to see the show, trust me, you're going to see more Alice than you ever thought. But if you see me at the baseball game, I'm probably going to be sitting there eating a hot dog and going, go Tigers. Right. right, right, right. So I really did have to separate the two. And and we talked about this before where I refer to Alice as Alice. and, And I can then be very subjective about what Alice does. You know, Alice, I think we all appreciate how forthright and honest you are about getting sober and what it meant to your life. But do you ever wish you could go back and sit with some of the friends you lost, you know, Keith Moon or Harry Nilsson, and say to them, get a grip here. It's not romantic to live fast and die young. Yeah, there's that moment when you do become sober and you, you're you so thankful for it. I mean, mine was truly spiritual. It was like a miracle, biblical miracle. I came out of the hospital and I never had a craving. Mm. So people always go, well, you know, you're a cured alcoholic. And I go, no, I'm a healed alcoholic. Mm. Because this went beyond any kind. I have no self-control. I was the classic alcoholic. Now I was using alcohol as medicine. That's when you become an alcoholic. So I went through all that. I got up one morning, threw up blood, went into the hospital. My wife took me into the hospital and where I deserved to be. Because she says, look, party's over. I get it. It was fun. Over. Let's go. <laughs> a strong mm. woman. When I came out, though, I never had a craving. Mm. And it was one of those things where the doctor said, no, you have to go through AA. You have to have a sponsor. And I said, I will get, go to AA and have a sponsor if the first time I get a craving to have alcohol, okay? I'll make that deal with you. Okay. 33 years later, I still have net, not had that craving. Yeah. So as far as I'm concerned, even the doctor says, that's a miracle. And I'm going, yeah, it is. So to me, it's a spiritual thing. I think God just took it away from me. The guys all that are still here, now, nobody can explain Keith Richards, okay? He's not really a human that's being. Twilight that's Twilight Zone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, <laughs> he's, he's into another dimension of something. But the ones that, that are still here, Iggy, all the guys that are still here, are reached a crossroads somewhere where they went, I'm either going to die and join my buddies, or I'm going to either slow down or stop and make another 20 albums. And those are the guys that are all my age, 67, 66, still touring. I used to be such a sweet, sweet- 
have an opinion on Alice Cooper or anything else in the music world, call our hotline at 888-859-1800 and leave a message. After the break, we'll get to the last part of our conversation with Alice plus Jim's Desert Island Jukebox pick. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott. He's Jim DeRogatis. And that was a little bit of the song Under My Wheels from Alice Cooper's 1971 album, Killers. We're thrilled to be joined by Alice Cooper this week. Now, Alice, you've obviously had a huge influence on musicians who have aped your theatricality. And we're talking about everyone from Marilyn Manson to Lady Gaga. What do you think your legacy is going to be? Well, I think I, I think I broke down a barrier. I think that, that the band, you know, went through this barrier of like what we talked about before where nobody respected us. No, everybody thought, well, take the show away and they're nothing. So we had to work extra hard. And the whole thing was like finally established the fact that, yeah, we're not going away and we're going to keep making records. and We're going to keep doing great shows. That's it. Better get used to it because mm-hmm. I'm not going anywhere. Right. And I think that the attitude is what most people picked up on. Yeah, everybody liked the makeup. Kiss loved the makeup. They, I think their statement was, if one Alice works, then four ought to work. Yeah, you know? four times better. And I knew who they were. We told them where to buy the makeup. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't like they came as a shock to me. Marilyn Manson, Alice Cooper, Marilyn Manson. Yeah, you know, makeup, yeah, yeah. theatrics, the whole thing like that. I think when I first saw him, I said, what a great idea. I wish I would have thought of that. (laughs) (laughs) But we became great friends after a while. We ended up finding common ground. And it was basically the fact that you're entertainers and you entertain the audience. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you can find a way to do that 
and make them want to see more, then you're a true entertainer. And I think I brought the attitude of don't ever go on stage with the attitude of, gosh, I hope you like us tonight. Right, right, right. <laughs> well, not a John Denver attitude. You had to go up there and grab them by the throat and shake them for two hours. Mm-hmm. Alice, back to the songwriting thing. So, so 15 CDs on this studio album, 69 to 83. Dig deep. Give us a track that you think wouldn't be in the top 20 that, that Alice Cooper fans would, would, would cite that you're particularly proud of. There's songs that I go, how is that not a hit? How yeah. can Lost in America not be a hit? Mm-hmm. It is exactly what's going on. I can't get a girl because I ain't got a car. I can't get a car because I ain't got a job. Oh, I can't get a job because I ain't got a car. So I'm looking for a girl with a job and a car. So tell us about writing Lost in America. Okay, well, the, the whole idea behind that was can't get a girl because I ain't got a car. Ain't got a car because I ain't got a job. Ain't got a job because I ain't got a car. Looking for a girl with a job and a car. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. Lost in America. You know, I mean, to me, that was exactly what was going on in America. I'm lost in America. I'm yeah. just lost. And it was so down the middle. It, it couldn't have been more in your face. And exactly what was going on, and it wasn't a hit. And I just went, unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs> How was that not a hit? If if Nirvana would have done that song, it would have been a monster hit. <laughs> but we were we were at a point now in, in radio where it wasn't what's good. It was what's next. I think you guys have seen this. If McCartney came out right now with an album better than Sgt. Pepper, it wouldn't get played. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? If you 2 right now came out, They'd never get signed because they're too old. Mm-hmm. Right. So it has nothing to do with quality. It's always, let's find the next Sam Smith. Right. right. You know, right. let's find the next Taylor Swift. We've been talking to Alice Cooper. Alice, it's been a real pleasure having you on the show. Thanks for coming hey, on. Hey, thank you, guys. It's good. You guys know your music. Well, you know, well, someday we we're going to have to grow up and get a real job. But basically, <laughs> mentally, we're don't. still 18 and we like it. Yeah. yeah, please don't. Don't get a job, okay? <laughs> <laughs> As often as possible on Sound Opinions, we like to take a trip to the desert island to play a song we cannot 
Live Without. Jim, it's your turn this week. Thanks, Greg. And I'm going to give the ladies some in a genre where they are very rare indeed. I'm talking about that wonderful period in the late 60s in garage rock, psychedelic, nuggets-style garage rock. Very few all-female bands. This comes with a tip from another rock critic, Lindsay Zolads. I had seen her speak at South by Southwest a few years ago. She wrote a fantastic piece for Bitch Magazine about this band, She. And I just saw it picked up again in the Utney Reader, reminded me to dig into this group. What a great story. You know, there's the Shags, right? That famous story of the band from New England, the sisters, right? But She was a much more serious rock band and a much more talented rock band formed by two sisters in the Sacramento area. These women were hellraisers, Greg. As teenagers, their favorite thing to do was to go to the state capitol in Sacramento, stand in the balcony above the rotunda, and spit on the senators' heads as they were walking in. Right? How can you not love that? They formed this band that's originally got a horrible name, Harem, H-A-I-R-E-M, mm. right? And it's a garage rock group. Eventually, uh, people come and go. They had a very hard time, the Ross sisters, finding other women, because they were committed to being an all-female band. The group coalesces. They change their name to She, which, is, I mean, it's a perfect name, right? And they put out one perfect single. It's really only one side of the single that I'm going to play for you. They had signed to a small record label, like all the other groups in the Nuggets era that wanted to find an American Beatles, except these bands were much more raw and ragged in America here. And they had two great songs. The record label forced them to come up with something poppier. And then that, of course, becomes the single over the protestations of the band. But the B-side, the tune I'm going to play, is just absolutely wonderful. And then a couple of years ago, there was a compilation of some of the early harem stuff and the Kent 45 and then later She stuff. It's the perfect album that should have come out in 1970 instead of that single, Boy, Little Boy, which was the A-side that they just did as a toss-off and the B-side masterpiece, Out of Reach. You hear so many roots of punk on this song from 1970. Listen to the way that Sally Ross tosses off the yeah at the end of every verse. That is pure Patti Smith, circa 76, 77. Listen to that Farfisa organ, right? Listen to the guitar. It's ferocious. This is not novelty rock. These are real women tearing up the garage rock scene in 1970. I just love this record since I've discovered it. And a shout-out to Lindsay Zolads for sharing it with the world. This is She, Out of Reach, on Sound Opinions.
That is she without a reach, my Desert Island jukebox pick for the week. Greg, what do you have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, the anniversary of a classic album, The Clash is London Calling, the 35th anniversary of that album, and we're going to do a classic album dissection. As always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Sound Opinions is produced by Jason Saldana, Robin Lynn, Evan Chung, and Alex Claiborne. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. Dial my number, and I'll count the seconds and the minutes and the hours and the days that I waited till you said goodbye. New messages. Hi, guys. It's Dean from Chicago. And thanks for the great show on Wire. Jim, I love that band nearly as much as you. And uh, I wish I'd been at that taping because uh, I would ask uh, of the band whether the song Go Ahead is named for a cryptic image that features those words spoken to a mounted hunter entering a forest on the famous Mapa Mundi. It's a medieval map of the world located in Hereford Cathedral. Thanks again. Great show. Oh, I miss one pile. Gary Banta. They were asking for suggestions about artists that would be fun to have holograms come back. And I was thinking of a performance by Janis Joplin of Little Girl Blue that she did on uh, Tom Jones.
This is uh, Wes Henry. I'm calling from Lincoln Square, Chicago. Guys, the whole hologram thing, the performances, I don't care who it is. You might as well just trot the corpse out and prop it up on the stage and play music to it. I, I really don't find it to be entertaining. I find it morbid, and I find it fairly disgusting that people are making money off this. I just don't agree with it. Thanks a lot. You guys do a great job. Take care. Hey, my name is Brad. I'm from Las Vegas. If you're going to resurrect somebody as a hologram, it's got to be Nervous Norvis. Go back and dig up Nervous Norvis because, oh, my God, transfusion, transfusion. I read Corp Suckles are in mass confusion. How could you not want to see that live? Thank you. My foot's on the throttle and it's made of lead But I'm a fast-riding daddy with a real cool head I'm a gonna pass a truck on the hill ahead Transfusion, transfusion My red corpse suckles are in mass confusion Never, never, never gonna speed again Pour the crimson in me, Jimson I took a little drink and I'm a feeling right No more messages To give us your opinions on Sound Opinions, call our hotline 888-859-1800 We'll be back next week with more Sound Opinions produced by WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX. Speed again. Pass the claret to me, Barrett.